Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. Today, we are bringing you episode two of What a Week, the new weekly show on the Creedle podcast channel. This is me and Andrew Pettiprin. Today, we're sitting down doing our misinformation segment again and talking about architecture this time. And then finally, leaving you with our recommendations. In the future, we'll expand the show format, add a few different things to it. We'd love to have uh, listeners be able to call in and engage with us. But that starts with your feedback now. So let us know what you think of this format, what you think of the new show. Send me a note, Zach, at credopodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, we are back with another segment. You know, still haven't totally figured out what to call this. Andrew, you probably noticed that last week uh, we didn't even consult on this, but I just called it "What a Week" with Andrew Pettibrin. I kind of, I kind of like that. We'll see, we'll see how it goes, and maybe we'll find something better. But uh, this is "What a Week" episode two. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm great, Zach. What a week, indeed. How's your week going? It is going well. Uh, we mentioned weather the last time that we podcasted, and I asked you about Dallas, Texas. I said I assume that everything is. Very hot and very humid there. I woke up this morning, checked my weather app on my phone, as one does, and saw that it that it was ninety six percent humidity. Which well, I think I think if you're swimming in the pool, that's one hundred percent humidity. <laughs> and I woke up this morning, it was ninety six percent. So I was almost submerged by the time I even just woke up this morning. And that is that, that is the kind of weather we're having in the upper Midwest right now. So uh, it's feeling a little bit like Dallas, maybe not quite as high on the mercury but certainly as high and maybe even higher on the humidity. And that is, that is something, to, uh, something to rejoice over because God is sanctifying us through the upper Midwest weather, Andrew. And he will continue to do that uh, when, the, when the mercury drops low. So you, that you, is true. It, living where you do is, is uh, an act of true devotion. I, uh, I appreciate you recognizing that, Andrew. Um, mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah, I was I was talking to international colleagues today who were complaining about weather dipping as low as 15 degrees Celsius, which is something like uh, 55, I believe, Fahrenheit. And then I was mm-hmm. telling them that you know there was there were weeks at a time, well, I mean, at least one week for sure that I remember this past winter in Chicago, where the temperature did not get above 10 cells, 10 Fahrenheit, which is negative 12 Celsius, and they were surprised to hear that. That is, it's just not really, not really a place fit for human habitation, absent things like heat and air conditioning, which I, uh, I give, give thanks to God for. So, me too. Well, I'll keep looking for houses for sale in my neighborhood, Zach. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I'm excited to do another week of these with you. What a week it has been. We are going to do another misinformation segment, but we've mixed it up a little bit. So instead of one of us quizzing the others on five or six or seven different news stories. We are each going to pre- present to the other three different news stories, one of which is false. And so the task of you or me will be to identify which is the false story, and then we'll have a little discussion about each of the each of the different stories, and then we'll go on to our next segment. So are you ready for this, Andrew? I'm ready. Do you want to start or should I start? Uh, why don't you start? Okay. By start, you mean I read the stories to you? You read the stories, and then I'll I'll read mine to you after. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Here we go. So three different stories. Um, All right. Section one, uh, or or story one, uh, is about Afghanistan. I don't think we had Afghanistan featured in last week's misinformation ball, but uh, as you may know, Andrew, and as really you, you certainly know, on August 1st, 2022, the U.S. military targeted and killed Al Qaeda leader Ayman al Zawahiri in a Kabul home, Kabul, Afghanistan. This is a major uh, victory uh, for the U.S. He has been hunted by the U.S. for so long. He was one of the lead planners in the bombing of the USS Cole. He was Osama bin Laden's number the number one lieutenant, the number two leader of uh, Al-Qaeda, and assumed the mantle of leadership once Osama bin Laden died in 2011, I think it was. So for 11 years, he's been number one on the Al-Qaeda priority list, and we finally got him. On August 1st, 2022, just a few days ago. So that happened. And then here's, the, here's where the story comes in, Andrew, because that's true. That's, that's verifiable. That's not the misinformation segment. Here's, the, uh, here's the, ch- the challenge for you. During a follow-up question at the DOD press conference announcing the death, DOD spokesman Cal Cunningham mentioned that the Defense Department, quote, 
has particular pride in the fact that the mission commander and pilot of the drone mission were a woman and a person of color, respectively. End quote. A little bit of context. You don't need to decide yet because you've got two more to go, but a little bit of context. Uh, as an Air Force guy, I understand some of the terms here. The uh, mission commander of the mission uh, would be, that refers to the the drone itself. It's called the drone, but it's not really a drone. It's a remotely piloted aircraft. Uh, so uh, the mission commander is the person who's responsible for integrating the intelligence into the aviation mission in real time. They're in the room with the, the pilot uh, or the pilots of the drone and all the other uh, crew associated with that. And then the pilot obviously is the person who is remotely piloting this aircraft. So a little bit of context there. Any, any clarifying questions before I read you the next one, Andrew? Uh, I think I'm good. I have to determine whether this piece of information about the woman and the person of color involved in this mission was true or false. Correct. Yeah. So is it true? Okay. Yeah. So I just gave you the context, obviously. And then there's the fact of Sawahiri's death. But the, the misinformation part of this is okay. during a follow-up question at a DOD press conference announcing the death, DOD spokesman Cal Cunningham mentioned that the Defense Department, quote, has particular pride in the fact that the mission commander and pilot of the drone mission were a woman and a person of color, respectively. Okay, that's the that's the misinformation mm -hmm. segment. Okay. Okay. Section two. Uh, a Michigan representative named Pete Meyer, who was running for re-election, lost uh, his primary race to a candidate named John Gibbs. Now, Pete Meyer is a moderate Republican who has been in the House for several years, and he was one of the, I think, 10 Republicans to vote uh, in favor of the second Trump impeachment. So he's been uh, he's been moderate. He's been a, a prominent voice in the GOP, criticizing the president's role, especially in January 6th. And he lost his primary to a self-identified MAGA candidate in John Gibbs. Now, here is the misinformation section. Is it true that Pete, that Pete Meyer, in losing his close race with John Gibbs, was disadvantaged by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee donating somewhere between $300,000 and $500,000 in ad spend against Representative Meyer? All right. Okay. And then item number three, the New York Times was, by the way, featured, I think, twice in last week's misinformation segment. Today, they're only featured once, but this one comes potentially from the New York Times, uh, if indeed it is true, and we'll see. Uh, here's a story, uh, an excerpt from a story in the New York Times praising the war in Ukraine as a, cat well, I shouldn't say praising the war in Ukraine, but identifying the war in Ukraine as a catalyst for change on LGBTQ rights. And the quote is, Assuring rights for LGBT people has taken on added urgency at a time when Moscow is seizing territory and apparently plans to annex it into Russia. In Ukraine, the sight of LGBTQ people in uniform fighting back against Russian invaders has helped foster acceptance of sexual minorities. End quote. So is that or is that not a real quote from the New York Times? Those are the three. So the first one, okay. is that a real quote from DOD spokesman? The second one, is it true that that Pete Meyer lost his race in part because the Democrats gave money to his self-identified MAGA opponent, uh, or at least ran ads on his behalf. And section three is, is it true that the New York Times uh, said this about uh, LGBT rights and uh, the war uh, in Ukraine? All right. Okay. So there you go. Let me, let me arrive at, uh, at my answer here. Let me start with saying number two about the funding of the uh, more moderate Republican is true. I believe it's true, and I, because I think that this is going on relatively often, the Democrats are funding Trumpier candidates um, because they think they'll be better opponents, uh, which is kind of a weird thing if they really believe that Trump and Trumpism is kind of an existential threat to American democracy. It seems a little bit uh, disingenuous to fund people who are actually representing that. So I'm going to say that number two is true. Am I right? You are correct. Yeah, I took I took the approach of like the SAT test makers when crafting yeah. these because you have to make one that's sort of easily you easily mm -hmm. eliminated off the bat, and then you're left to decide between the two sort of more plausible ones. I think okay. in, in future installments, I'll make it a little bit harder for you, Andrew. But you're right; this is true. You know what? And and you're right; this is happening pretty frequently. Uh, Democratic campaign finance arms, including you know Democratic PACs or PACs operating on behalf of Democrats, are giving money more and more to MAGA opponents, or at least uh, indirectly supporting their campaigns through ad buys like this one. And 
it is, I think it's just, it really should be illegal to do that. I don't know exactly how you craft policy to make that illegal, but it should be illegal. Kat Rosenfield, who was on my podcast several months ago to talk about her book and some of her writing, is a is a self-identified liberal progressive. She and I disagree. I mean, she's a great person. I think we had a great conversation, but we disagree on a lot of political issues. And just on Twitter the other day, she was saying that this just infuriates her because it puts to the lie or puts the lie to the fact uh, that Democrats have claimed for years now to be the party of democracy, to, to say that the MAGA folks are the real enemy of democracy, that they are an existential threat to democracy, like you said. And so it's very, very frustrating to, to square those two things. How is, it, how is it possible that John Gibbs is an existential threat to the American Republic, and yet you are pouring half a million dollars uh, into ad buys on his behalf against his primary opponent, who is one of 10 GOP congressmen who are not at all involved in that MAGA coalition. And in fact, I, you know, voted to impeach Trump over the January 6th issue. Really, really mm-hmm. ridiculous and depressing stuff. And uh, I think it's things like this that, that make me and many, many others cynical about everyone in American politics. For sure. Well, that leaves me with two, uh, two, two to choose from. And uh, I'm going to guess that number one is true, that, it, that the Defense Department was happy to announce that it was a, uh, someone who fit into intersectional boxes or whatever was the one to actually complete the mission or whatever. And I'm going to say that the third one is false, that uh, despite the perhaps valor being displayed by gay people or LGBT people or whatever, they're not actually gaining acceptance in Ukraine. So there's my final answer. All right. Three it, is false. It was a valiant effort, Andrew, but actually one is false and three is true. Uh, yeah. I should have known. So, but I, but I think, I mean, this is the point of the segment, right? It is very difficult to distinguish between parody and reality now. I do not think it is at all outside the bounds of believability that the Defense Department would proclaim proudly that, you know, we're, we're so proud that it was a woman and a person of color involved in this assassination mission against uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Uh, in fact, it is true, and I will include the link in the show notes that, uh, the New York Times has this article dated August 2nd, so from a couple of days ago as we're recording this, that is talking, it, the headline is War Spurs Ukrainian Efforts to Legalize Same-Sex Marriage. Uh, and it is, I'll just, well, we can leave it here, Andrew, at least I'll leave it here, but this is a very, very interesting way <laughs> to talk about uh, the war in Ukraine, to uh, to view it through the lens of sort of advancing the, uh, the LGBT agenda <laughs> via legislation. Very interesting way of framing this. Well, there we are. All right. Well, are you ready for, uh, for mine, Zach? I am ready. Let's go. Okay. Number one, the head coach of the University of Michigan football team, Jim Harbaugh, a pro-life, uh, pro-life man, has promised to raise the babies of players in his program if they should find themselves in a situation where there is an unplanned pregnancy. That's number one. I, I like I Harbaugh, by the way. I'm, I'm a fan of Michigan football. Yeah. You are a fan of Michigan football? I am. Yeah. I didn't go to Michigan. Uh, my wife did not go to Michigan. I don't have any real reason to be a fan of Michigan football, but there was a guy named Denard Robinson in 2011, I think, who uh, was the quarterback at the University of Michigan, and he was super fast. His signature thing was that he never tied his cleats and sometimes when he was he was breaking away down the field on a some sort of you know design QB run, sometimes he would lose a sh- lose a shoe. Uh, but he was super super fast and super super fun to watch. And then he went to the NFL. I think he transitioned to wide receiver because uh, he didn't have great arm talent and uh, kind of flamed out. I think in Jacksonville or something. But he was super fun to watch, and I was mm-hmm. just kind of a fan of of the uh, Wolverines from that point forward. So. Interesting. Yeah. Well, my grandfather went to the University of Michigan, so Very nice. in my family, we sort of enjoyed rooting for Michigan from time to time. Yeah. Have, you, have you been to Ann Arbor? It's a beautiful town. It's a lot of fun. I've never been to Ann Arbor. No. Okay. Uh, never been there. I'd like to. Yeah, it's nice. All right. Yeah. So that's number one. Okay. That's number one. Number two, you and I are both film fans, and we're both fans of the filmmaker Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Last week, we saw the first tiny, tiny teaser trailer for the film, which will be coming out in July of 2023, called Oppenheimer. And the, uh, the story is, for you to determine whether it's true or false, that Christopher Nolan, who is fond of practical effects rather than CGI, mm-hmm. 
is going to detonate an actual atomic bomb in the making of his movie. True or false? Wow. Wow. Okay. That's a All tough right. one. That's, that's number two. I have to think no. I have to think no, but okay, go on. I'll, I'll reserve my final answer until number three. We'll know soon. Okay, number three. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, in a speech on religious liberty given in Rome about a week or so ago, I think, he lamented that Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, had, quote, wounded him. I'll leave it at that. True or false? Has the Duke of Sussex wounded a sitting justice of the United States Supreme Court? There are your three choices. Michigan football, Christopher Nolan, Justice Alito. So uh, this is this this ends up being a little bit easier for me because I I do I do remember seeing the Jim Harbaugh story. I thought it was in the context of him promising to raise the uh, babies of his family members if necessary, but that has to have if he said that to his family, he probably said that said that to his players as well. So I'm going to guess that that is true. So then it's between... You are correct. Okay. You are correct. And let me give you a little more context right. on that. That is correct. He, he made this statement about his, particularly about his family, but then pressed on it. He, he made it clear that the, the same author, uh, offer stands for anyone in his program who had an unwanted pregnancy. He says, anyone who has not the means or the wherewithal, he said, I've told them the same thing I tell my kids, boys, the girls, the same thing I tell our players our staff members, he told ESPN. So he's really trying to put his money where his mouth is on his pro-life stance. I have to say, I love this, Andrew. We need more of this, yeah. more of this type of leadership. I also think the, the thing I remember seeing about that story that struck me was not so much that he made that offer, although that was definitely a noble and loving thing to do, but that he said, we need to talk about this. He was not afraid to put his opinion out there. And he was, you know, I think we often, we often arrive at a point where we just don't want to get into it. We don't get into politics, but if if we are correct that that is a human person inside of another person, then we need to talk about it. And we need to figure out ways to uh, help both of those people, both the person, the mother carrying the child and the child who is inside of the mother. And I really respect Jim Harbaugh for talking about it, knowing full well that he would definitely take some heat for it. And he did. But I also think it was interesting that he really took less heat than I thought he was going to do. And perhaps it was because he was really focused on the well-being of the people involved and not simply you know, moralizing and saying, shame on a woman if she ever considers an abortion. Rather, he's saying, look, I understand if that's a consideration in the thought of, in the mind of any parent, but I'm, I'm here to help and my wife is here to help if that is. So I, I think that's great. We need more of that kind of dialogue. Yep, very inspiring. All right, what do you think about number two or three? So I have to think, I have to think number two is false. So that's gonna be my guess. I don't, I mean, yeah, I guess I'll just say that. It has to be false. It is okay. false, but it was too it was too good. I saw it going around the internet. It was too good not to wonder I love it. about because Christopher Nolan famously loves practical effects. He really wants to shoot with the camera things that are really happening. And um one of his actors who's in the film Killian Murphy who plays Oppenheimer, he said, "Isn't it wonderful that filmmakers are still making challenging demanding films within the studio system shot on film?" And then he goes on to praise Oppenheimer for the techniques that he uses and everything. Everybody's looking forward to this movie. But no, he's not actually going to detonate an atomic bomb. That would not. You know, I, I actually, it made me wonder what would happen if some, if a private citizen production company, whatever, detonated a small atomic bomb. Like, I don't know what the, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I should know. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I should know, but I don't know what like international law exists about that. And then if international law exists, there's not really mechanism, mechanism to prosecute an individual under international law. I mean, the, the Hague can say whatever they want, but I don't think this would really be an international criminal court issue. So I don't know. That's really interesting. Like how, how would, I guess there'd probably be, the hardest thing would probably be getting the resources to do that because uh, in the US, at least all of that, all of the, the, the fissile material used to make bombs is very tightly controlled by the doe so i think that the real obstacle is not any sort of um formal legal one but it's got to be one of just resources however uh, i do think back you know i've seen you probably have too seen some of those videos of world war ii era tests of nuclear bombs i used to work with a guy who said his grandfather was one of these army soldiers and one of his one of his worst assignments in the army was being stationed on some sort of Pacific atoll where there were 
tests done. And his job was to basically like run through the radioactive field shortly after a nuclear explosion so that they could sort of measure the effects uh, and the lingering radioactivity and the concentration of radioactive particles in the air, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, things that would definitely not be allowed today. And this person, uh, you know, not surprisingly died of many different types of cancer pretty early in his life, almost certainly mm -hmm. because of that task. So the point is, this has been done before where there are, you know, for more or less frivolous reasons, lots of uh, open air nuclear tests done. I just can't imagine that it would happen today. But I do kind of like the idea of Christopher Nolan trying to convince the DOE <laughs> to get him enough fissile material to make a nuclear bomb just so he can film it. You, you never, never know. know. But as far as I know, at this point, it's not. Don't you happen. think he at least thought about it? Like, don't you, don't you think he probably had a conversation oh, yeah. was like, what would it take to actually film a nuclear bomb? You yeah, had to. You yeah. got to wonder. Yeah. He's the real deal. All right. Should we go on to our next segment, Andrew? Let's cool. do it. So the next segment is Close Read. Uh, we, we went back and forth on um, what we should talk about today, but we ended up settling on this very interesting one from a person named Wrath of Non. And I say person because I don't know if this is a mm -hmm. man or a woman. I, you, you may know who this person is, Andrew, but to my knowledge, they're a rather anonymous a person who hides behind the wrath of non persona on uh, on social media and the internet, but maybe you know more than I do. I do not know who this person is. I assume it's a male individual. I believe that he lives in Japan. Um, a lot of his content has to do with Japanese stuff, um, but he also writes a lot about European architecture and, and society and stuff like that. Um, non or Ganon is a back a backronym they call it a backwards acronym for nature or nature's god apparently i did not um, know that okay you know yeah and so part of like you know part of his program with his with his writing is kind of you know it has a little bit of an apocalyptic or sort of feel to it you know like if we're you know we're kind of sinning against nature in a sense like the things that we're building the things that we're constructing and all of that sort of thing um, so he, he's a fascinating figure. I've been following him on Twitter for a long time and he now has this sub stack and just kind of ekes out posts every so often that are very well thought out. And the one that we're going to look at today, he, he tells us at the end is a part one of a series. So it'll be interesting to see where he's going to go with the rest of it. But, um, I recommend following him, Wrath of Gnan, um, and, uh, checking out his, uh, sub stack too. Yeah. I have also followed him for a while. And although I, I made, I may have gotten rid of him in one of my, you know, latest purges of, uh, Twitter, but, uh, I followed him for a, a at least a long time. And I always loved his thoughtful comments on architecture. And more than that, I loved his pictures because he would, he, he would, he does post these pictures of beautiful architecture, sometimes not beautiful architecture, but beautiful architecture that just makes you wanting more. And, um, mm -hmm. and he also has a lot of thoughts on sort of new urbanism and urbanism, which I find really interesting, but this idea of seeing beautiful ar mm -hmm. architecture and wanting more is deeply linked to the topic of the read that we're going to do. So maybe we should just dive right in. Andrew, you found this, I had not read it until you sent it to me, but what is this, what is this article? And by the way, it's linked in the show notes. If you wanted to skim it while Andrew's talking through it, but it's called the alluring city, uh, by wrath of, I don't, I, now I'm curious, is it Gnan or not? Cause I always thought it was non like Gnostic, but maybe it is Gnan. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I know even on Gnostic, like people like N.T. Wright tend to say yeah. Gnostic instead That's of Gnostic. Fair. I don't know because of their better Greek Tell you what, how about, we, how about we... How, Sorry, the lights just went out. No worries. Sitting how about we tweet at Wrath of Non and ask him <laughs> if it's Gnan or Non. Let's right. find... Yeah, let's, let's do we'll, that. We'll report back. Well, the post we're going to look at is... Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, let's see if we can get his attention from our from our discussion of his article too. Um, and the article is called "The Alluring City," which I think had been just kind of sitting in my inbox for a while. Um, and uh, it's called "The Alluring City: A Philosophical Inspection." Um, and what Gnan does in this article is um, bring to our attention the problem with the use of the word "beauty" at the outset when it comes to thinking about building things, especially like, you know, public buildings and stuff like that. And it starts off with this uh, kind of subtle critique of elites who, you know, if you say to them something like, well, that's just not beautiful. There can, there's this sort of easy way out of, uh, of that argument for them where they can just kind of say, well, tell me what beauty is then. 
you know, we can't even settle on a definition of what that is. Don't tell me that something's beautiful because what's beautiful to me may not be beautiful to you or whatever, right? So, so Ganon then goes on to talk about how, um, you know, obviously the word beauty conveys a lot. It's a, an important word, but he says, the word beauty has become so infused with value and status that it has become almost unusable. So he wants to get out of, of, of the mindset of thinking about what's beautiful versus not beautiful with regard to the buildings and the, the urban planning and the towns and like the kind of the physical environment that we live in. And he wants us instead to use the word allure, the word allure. And he defines allure as the quality of being powerfully and mysteriously attractive or fascinating. Um, it, it's the kind of thing that makes you feel alive, allure. So he says, this is what we ought to be striving for when we plan our cities, when we build our buildings, when we think about everything from a, a gas station to an a, a, a individual family home or whatever it may be, allure. And I like that a whole lot. So I'm wondering what you think about it, Zach. Is allure a better word for us to use? Well, I don't know if better is is right, but I think it is perhaps a it is perhaps a more effective one when engaging in someone who does not buy into our own understanding of beauty. I think when you and I talk about beauty, we have a shared metaphysical foundation from which to sort of generate an understanding of that word. Someone who doesn't will respond exactly how Wrath of Nan is is posing that they do. Like, well, you know, it's there's that's that's a really subjective word. It means different things to different people. There's not really a solid basis, even neuroscientifically, to talk about uh, beauty. So allure, I think, is better in that case because allure is almost by definition, a subjective word, but it, but it has universal application. And so you, people can find, very different people can find the same thing alluring, or at the very least, they understand the notion of allurement. Everyone I think can think, think, think back to some building they saw, some vista in front of them, some woman or some man that they encountered, and they felt this sort of invisible pull towards that person or that thing or that view, whatever it is. So yes, I actually, I did find his argument that allure uh, was perhaps a more effective uh, rhetorical tool than beauty, uh, quite persuasive. I like too that it sort of, it captures the mystery of, you know, of the world around us. I mean, we, you know, we live in a sacramental universe, we believe anyway, right? And so mysterion is the Greek version of sacramentum, um, you know, we live in a mysterious universe. We live in a, a universe where, um, you know, where re there's a whole lot of reality in the in the created order, and it's arresting, or it's it's grace imparting, or it's you know, it, there's something about it, right? And it's the kind of thing where you you know it when you see it, you feel it when you experience it. There's a kind of subjectivity about it, but it's more than just a feeling. It's more than just an emotion. It, it's something that I think Gnan is getting at here that is sort of, let's build things that he, he uses here, the example of that say things to us like, linger a little if you please, um, or hear but no further, see but don't touch, you know, that kind of conveys this, even though it kind of is hitting us on a gut level, it's also uh, something that we all kind of agree is real. So I sort of like that the where he's going with this kind of the mysterious aspect of it. Yeah, and I think again this I think does uh, th this resonates with people who have seen any public building. Um because there are two different types of public buildings. There are the ones that are built well and there are the ones that are built poorly. And many of the modern ones, the vast majority of the modern ones in fact, are built very poorly. And to accompany this article that Wrath of Non wrote, Andrew, we also found this one on brutalist architecture it was originally published in the American Conservative. The link that I have in the show notes is from the Imaginative Conservative. It's republished there. This is from 2019, so it's not particularly new. But uh, most things worth reading are not particularly new. Um, but this is about brutalist architecture. And uh, Andrew, I was just mentioning to you before we hit record that my Saturday, this Saturday is book, the Saturday morning that I have is bookmarked already because I have to go to the DMV. And I have to go to the, it's a long story, but I try to go to the DMV on Tuesday this week. Was, I got there 10 minutes after, the, less than eight minutes after they opened. And the line outside the DMV is already extending outside the DMV and snaking around the building. So I walk to the very back of the building, I get in line. Someone comes out and is you know saying, if you're 
over 65, step out of line, you can be expressed. If you're just here for, you know, plate stickers, step out of line, you can be, uh, you can be in the express line. If you're here for title and registration, uh, we don't do that here. And I was like, wait, you don't, you don't, you don't do that here. What, what is the, what do you do if you don't do that? So anyway, I have to drive much farther from my home to get my, uh, to get my title and registration. And, uh, the only time that I can do that is on a non-work day. So I have to do it on Saturday. So I'm going to go very early, but I've already, uh, you know, I mapped this out and looked at this online to see what the parking situation was there since it's in the city of Chicago. And, uh, it, I can indeed drive. I don't have to take the train, uh, because there's parking there, but this is also, this is brutalist architecture. And I was not surprised because I've never seen a DMV that was beautiful. I've never seen a DMV Mm -hmm. that appealed to my aesthetic sensibilities. I've seen DMVs that look like factories. I've seen DMVs that look like prisons, but I've never seen a DMV that actually looks beautiful. And there's something to that. There's nothing alluring about a DMV. In in fact, quite the opposite. You know, as soon as you, as soon as you utter the name DMV and say, I have to go to the DMV, the the response from people is, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry that you have to do that. Uh, And so anyway, I was thinking about that article as I was looking at this brutalist architecture um, story because this, this one talks about specifically in Eastern Europe, all of the brutalist architecture that exists everywhere. And they say that this came about in the sort of era of central planning when central planning was the answer. And people always thought, yeah, this brutalism is actually a monument to, to us or to our system, which is unassailable, which is not capitalism, uh, in which everyone is the same egalitarianism, et cetera, et cetera. And yet their very simple point was, look, it's been, what, 50 years, uh, maybe sometimes less since some of, the, some of these buildings have, have uh, been built. And already we hate them. Nobody likes these buildings anymore. Uh, they're just ugly monstrosities that are sort of monuments to a very short window of time in the 20th century. Um, and instead, when you go to Eastern Europe, what you see is old town squares filled with 400-year-old buildings that, sure, they're crumbling in some cases and dilapidated in the need of maintenance and repair. Uh, but people are in those squares. They're, they're dancing, they're singing, they're having their markets, they're having their you know, Chris Kindle marks or whatever it is. Um, they're living in those squares. They're doing human things uh, because those squares are inviting. Those squares have allurement. And I know you've been to, to Europe, um, Andrew, I have as well. So you know what I'm talking about, though. There's, there are, there's a lot of br- brutalism in Europe. And the brutalism things are not you don't you don't come you don't come back from Europe with your iPhone full of brutalist images. You come back from Europe with your iPhone full of beautiful churches and town squares and uh, historic government buildings and things like that. Um, so yeah, I thought that I thought that article went well with the the wrath of non one because it gets to this idea of allurement and what is the opposite of, of allurement, which might be something like disgust. Yeah, uh, the the author of the article, Will Collins, he uses uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris as kind of like the, you know, the 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 best example of an alluring building. He doesn't use the word alluring, right? But I mean, to to connect with the the Wrath of Non article, because um, that, as you say, that's where people go. If you go on a trip to Europe, you don't want to go see a kind of you know brutalist uh, housing block in bratislava slovakia or something there's probably some other beautiful thing to go and see in slovakia but you're not going to go you're not going to go see that right but you are going to want to see the cathedrals you're going to want to see the things that have a kind of humane story about them in addition to just being you know marvels of of architecture and full of beautiful glass and you know and that kind of thing um you know yeah brutalist architecture tends to be uh most people just don't like it, uh, including the people who have to endure it the most, like people who live in brutalist buildings in you know, government housing or something like that. And when brutalist buildings are taken down, as Collins talks about in the article, um, the, the people in the area where they're being taken down are usually very happy about it. And it's, it's maybe just the kind of architectural elites who think the buildings ought to hang around or something. So it's it's an odd kind of disconnect. Like again, you know, people sort of know the allure thing. People know uh, what is actually desirable and beautiful and livable when they see it. Um, and and uh, there is a kind of I don't know if you'd call it a cottage industry or a kind of high level manipulation or something that is like imposing, and still to this day, sort of imposing upon people this um, less than beautiful, less than alluring vision. Yeah, I completely agree. The only other thing I would add is that this is not you and me railing against modern architecture. This isn't uh, 
you know, I think there's a certain beauty to a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright's work, for example, um, that, you know, I might preferentially uh, prefer something something else, some Italianate cathedral, for example, but this isn't about modern architecture per se. As another example, uh, have you been to Barcelona, Andrew? No, I want to. So um, the La Sagrada Familia, the the, the mm. sacred family uh, cathedral, I think it's a cathedral, maybe it should be a, a, a basilica, but that is in Barcelona and it's beautiful, but it's very unique, right? It's, it's, a, it's modern. Uh, it was designed by um, Antonio Gaudi. And, uh, you know, at first when I saw it, I was like, this looks kind of like it's melting. I don't exactly know what I, lo- what I think about this architecture, but it was definitely alluring. There was something to it remarkable. I was taking pictures out on the outside. We couldn't go inside at the time for whatever reason. I forget what, maybe renovations or something. Um, but so we were taking pictures of the outside. I later talked to a friend about it and described it as melting. And this friend said, oh, do you think that it actually looks like it could be emerging from the ground? And that, mm. that changed it on its head. But there's, there's a meaning and there's a form there that is substantial, even independent of the allure that that building still holds. And then you learn that Antonio Gaudi was a very holy man. And Pope Francis has even spoken in support of his sanctity and, and possibly raised the, uh, the possibility, or has, has raised the possibility of his canonization eventually. So a very different situation in which, uh, you know, a, a different situation compared to the DMV, for example, this brutalist architecture. So this is not you and me ranting against modern architecture per se. It's a rant. Right. It's a rant against architecture that lacks allurement. What we might otherwise call beauty, but what Rathenon points out, uh, Rathenon points out, is perhaps better described as allurement. Yeah. It, the the author also mentions just to kind of um, bring this in as well. He also mentions that um, this critique of brutalism can extend also to like so. If we think of brutalism as almost a kind of like totalitarian left wing sort of thing. We end up also in kind of the the capitalist world with this like kind of generic um almost equally soul like soulless kind of architecture that proliferates everywhere in the United States for example. Like, you know, every city has the same looking strip malls and you know, everything's so kind of standardized and boring and all of that kind of thing um that in in some respects, it's it's no better. It's no better than than kind of the maybe twentieth century brutalism that seemed to represent communism. Um, you know, so it's like something to look out for in all kinds of different directions. Um, this sort of soulless, inhumane uh, design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the same goes goes for uh, many new construction developments that I see popping up. Whereas just see, and you probably have a ton. I I know you have a ton of this in Dallas. I don't know if it's right where you Mm -hmm. are, but when I've driven around Dallas, I've just been struck by subdivision after subdivision of houses that look very, very similar, almost identical. And there's nothing Mm -hmm. really remarkable about that because it does look like they could have all come off of, come off an assembly line. They all look the same. There's nothing sort of distinctive about that. I mean, I think allurement has to also include individuality. It has to include distinctiveness. It has to include uniqueness if it is to be alluring because you don't want the same thing everywhere. Yeah. And if you drive through most modern cities, you know, if an alien anthropologist were looking at us, they would think that our hospitals were our cathedrals. You know, um, every city, there are signs all over the highways about, you know, here's our fancy new hospital. And and they're all the same kind of glass and steel things, um, you know, that and all the office buildings around them are the same. So, yeah, I mean, this is not just restricted to a kind of um, a left-wing ideological program. We have in suburban America and urban America, too, for that matter, um, this this sort of conformity, uniformity, um, which is, I don't know if it's altogether good for us. Yeah, I completely agree. I th- I think we'll have to stay tuned to uh, Wrath of non Substack to see when part two came out. When you sent this to me, I saw that it was written back in, I think, April. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. April, and and I saw that it was part one, so I was like, "Oh, let's find part two. And he has not published it yet, so I'm I'm I eagerly know. awaiting part two, and hope that he publishes it soon. But I guess in the meantime, Andrew, do you have any thoughts on the way out of this? Because we definitely are in. I mean, there there are some signs of life. There is a return to uh, to some sort of urbanism. You know, new urbanism as a movement has grown. I think uh, people are interested in creating um, creating aesthetically interesting spaces. 
But at the same time, as we talked about last week, there is this flatness aesthetic, this this pursuit of frictionless. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that last week's author, Alana Newhouse, uh, discussed in 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 detail was how every coffee shop that you go into looks basically more or less the same. You know, it has sort of the hipster coffee shop vibe. And there's some distinctiveness to that maybe here and there, but no, it's not really distinctive. They use, you know, art deco lettering. They have Edison bulbs hanging up. They have exposed ceilings. They have lots of exposed wood for their countertops. And, and it just, it ultimately it's, it's all the same. You know, there's not a whole lot of distinctiveness there. And so, uh, so that's sort of the other side of the coin. Yes, we have some interest in returning to this. We have some renewed appreciation for concepts of beauty and allurement. But at the same time, we really have this giant technologically assisted push for frictionless, for flatness, for sameness. And those two things are, are not the same. They actually are sort of seeking diametrically opposed ends. So I don't know how optimistic I should be on this. I don't really have I'm not informed enough on the state of things to have an opinion on whether or not I should be optimistic or pessimistic about it. For example, I'm not an architecture student. If I was, perhaps I'd have a better pulse on things. But and, and I know you aren't either. But I wonder if you have a, a better sense than I do, or if you have if you're inclined to be more optimistic or pessimistic than I am. I mean, I'm not very optimistic. We we get what we want, you know, and it seems like this is. What I mean, I say we, and not, it's not what I want, but I mean, we as a society, it seems like it's what we want. I mean, in, in the Middle Ages, in, in Paris, the people wanted Notre Dame Cathedral and they built it. They wanted Chartres Cathedral and they built it. And it goes on from there. You know, um, you know, we, we just have, we have different priorities and we're not invested in the, in the building of the things around us, maybe uh, like, like our ancestors might have been. So. Yeah, I I don't know. I I, I think maybe this is a topic we can continue to explore because I I think like it it affects us. It really does. It's one of those things in the fabric around us that is forming us and we need to be attentive to it. Well, we haven't talked about this um, in this conversation yet, except for the sort of Antony Gaudi cathedral stuff or some of the European cathedrals, but the average American Catholic church was built somewhere between 1960 and 1990. And talk about sameness and frictionless and flatness, Andrew. But I mean, they all look exactly the same, despite their efforts to be super distinctive. You know, they have some uh, rather modern artist who does the crucifix and the stained glass. And that artist is obviously, you know, taking pride in his or her individuality, but ultimately just all looks the same. It's completely uninspired. It's completely flat. Um, and I was thinking of this actually uh, because I saw some of the uh, some of the video of the installation mass for uh, for Bishop Barron, your boss at Word on Fire. And this is certainly not a criticism of Bishop Barron because this cathedral long predates his time in the Diocese of Winona, Rochester. But that is an ugly cathedral. And I saw pictures of the cathedral that preceded it that burned down, and it was beautiful, towering Gothic spires, etc. And then I saw the inside and outside of of the new cathedral, and I just thought, what what was this person thinking? Trying yeah. to make a church more like a DMV than a church, but that's that's essentially what we where we've arrived, and that's what most churches are now. And I have I have yet to see we had we had a church outside of St. Louis, a Catholic church that was a new construction and was trying to return to some of these uh, some of these sort of classic elements in architecture, but it, it certainly didn't go all the way. And that's the only example that I have ever seen in my Catholic journey so far of a new construction church in the U.S. that is even trying to do that. You know, maybe I'm sure you've seen more examples than I have, but, uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about the Catholic church's ability to recover what it has certainly lost. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm glad that you brought all this up because it reminded me of one thing, one, one particular thing that I am, that does make me a little bit optimistic, which is in my neighborhood, uh, um, in uh, the suburbs of Dallas, they've just knocked down a very ugly old Catholic church and they're building a very big traditional looking one. Now, I don't know what it's ultimately going to look like when every single bit is finished, but I mean, there's a bell tower, there's, you know, looks like there's going to be a beautiful traditional looking entrance. And it looks like an old church. It looks like they're building a new old church. So I, maybe things are going to start going in the other direction here. Um, that is great. It, it seems like we're at the end of the road with, with, with the way we've been doing. Things. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. 
I mean, uh, I should I should correct myself too because we had that church in, outside of St. Louis. We also in Austin, Texas, we went to St. John Newman Parish, Neumann, so in the N E U M A N, mm-hmm. the, the the former bishop, uh, Archbishop of Philadelphia, Saint. But that parish was not totally traditional in its architecture, but it had a lot of traditionalist leanings. It was it sort of tried to be cruciform, and I guess it was sort of cruciform, but not exactly. But most significantly and beautifully, it had this amazing mosaic on the ceiling. So if you're ever in the Austin area, you should go to Mass at this parish because this had a mosaic with all the 12 um, disciples, uh, obviously with uh, Matthias and not Judas. And then it had the accompanying um, patriarch of the tribe, of, of each tribe of Israel around. And then in the center of the mosaic were four Eucharistic uh, vignettes from the Old and New Testament, I think uh, Melchizedek. Uh, the wedding at the marriage of Cana, the I think the slaughter of Isaac, and perhaps the feeding of the five thousand. Um, I may have a few of those wrong, but it was just it was beautiful. And we would go there for mass, and my kids would just stare and look at the ceiling because it was beautiful. And it was it was a real mosaic. It was not you know digitally printed or anything. So it was a like a million dollar plus project, I think, and took you know uh, a year or so for the artist to do it. I think, but it was really really cool. And that kind of thing. I mean, that's a that's a lure. I mean, talk about. Talk about allurement. My, that's my my kids would gravitate to, and there's no stronger proof uh, that you need of allurement than a human being just staring at something for a long time, contemplating it, breathing it in, taking it all in. Yep. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. So hopefully we're in a good direction there. All right. Uh, so I will include the links to both of those in the show notes: the Wrath of Non article and the Brutalist Architecture uh, article. And by the way, I'll just say here, I always say at the end, but if you have thoughts on this, you know, maybe you have more reason to be optimistic or pessimistic in the other direction. Uh, maybe you have further thoughts on architecture, uh, things to add to the conversation. Definitely send us a note, Zach at creedalpodcast.com or Zach and Andrew at creedalpodcast.com. And uh, yeah, I mean, we love hearing from listeners. So we would definitely would love to read your comment uh, on the next podcast and talk through it a little bit. Okay, the final segment for today is... Upon further review, and in this segment, we just recommend something, maybe a couple of things, handful of things that have been on our minds and that we think you might enjoy or benefit from. So uh, I'll go first for this one, Andrew. And my recommendation is a movie that my wife and I recently saw. Had not seen it until last week, but it is Silence. And Silence is a Martin Scorsese film uh, made in, I think, uh, 2016. Double checking. Yeah, it's 2016 film. Uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, and it is based on a novel uh, by a Japanese Catholic named Chusako Endo. And I won't give too much away, but the film, it, it's a its a rather heart-rending examination of faith uh, on theodicy. Why does God let evil things happen? Where is God in the midst of evil? Uh, questions of repentance, questions of sin, questions of um, apostasy. All kinds of really interesting questions are explored in this film, and it's a really good historical treatment, I think, of uh, 17th century Japan and the struggles of Christians there, so I recommend it. Uh, there's a lot to say about this film that we really don't have time for, um, but I will I will pick your brain for just a little bit, Andrew, because before we hit the record button, you told me that you wrote a review of this film uh, for a journal that is not online, so I can't uh, I can't link it in the show notes, but you wrote a review of this film. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I came away from this film just thinking, wow, that was not exactly the ending I expected. This did not have the turn I expected. I don't want to give too much away, but it's very satisfying to come away from a film and just watch basically a hero film, right? Where the, the protagonist of the movie, even if they have their foibles and they, and their falls, they end up totally victorious and sort of crush the enemy, either, either, uh, real or metaphorical. And that's not exactly what this, well, certainly not what this movie is. Not only is it not exactly what this movie is, it's decidedly not what this movie is. And so you come away from this movie uh, feeling rather complicated about it, um, as I did. And I'm still sort of processing processing it and wondering what Martin Scorsese is saying through it. And maybe even more importantly, wondering what Shisako Endo, the author of the original novel, is saying through this story. But Andrew, what are your very brief thoughts since you've you've reviewed it extensively? Well, I... I think that you have to, we can't give anything away. We don't want to give the ending away, but how you think of the ending, I think, is all important in your appreciation of that film. My personal take on on the ending is that 
what Scorsese is saying with the ending, even though it's very similar to what Endo depicts in the book, what Scorsese is saying is different from what Endo is saying. Okay. Um, I think that there are two slightly different messages. Uh, so I don't want to give too much away, but the things, and, and therefore I, I had a problem with Scorsese's movie ultimately because of that. Um, there were a couple of other things I didn't love about the movie, but there are some things I love about the movie. The thing that I love about the movie is the way that the, uh, is the way that the Christians in Japan are depicted. I mean, just the beauty of their faith that they suffer for is, is just extraordinary. I mean, mm -hmm. the movie begins with these people who have been secret Catholics for decades without seeing a single priest, without having any sacraments. And they've kept it. They've kept yeah. the faith up. It's extraordinary. Um, and there are just a lot of scenes like that that are just so arresting. When you really think about, even in the world today, um, that there are people who suffer for their faith, as yeah. the, the Japanese Catholics did in, in Endo's book and Scorsese's film. So, yeah, I would recommend everybody let's, see it. Let's it's do this, definitely Andrew. worth watching. I'm going to set a stopwatch. If you have not seen this film and you don't want a spoiler, advance ahead two minutes. Andrew, you have two minutes to talk through the spoilers and what the what the what the book ends up saying and what the film ends up saying and i'm starting the 2 minute timer right now so skip ahead if you don't want to have a spoiler all right 2 minutes andrew let's go okay here we go so you remember that one of the main things going on in the in the book and in the film is these two jesuit priests are trying to find another jesuit priest who has gotten lost in japan i mean right. basically like no one's heard from him they don't know what's going on but they hear this rumor that he's apostatized apostatized committed apostatized and that he's sort of um become become a buddhist and he's blended in or, or whatever it is yep. he's blended in to the japanese population sure enough they find him and it's true he's no longer he's gone, he's gone no totally native Catholic. yeah he's gone now totally native buddhist, and yeah. he explains right and he explains to his brother jesuit that catholicism simply can't work in japan it's the it's like trying to build a house in a swamp right Ultimately, Andrew Garfield's character, who's a, a Jesuit priest, he ends up going the same direction as his mentor. He goes native to After extensive torture, but yeah. After extensive torture and all these people that he's been discipling have died and, you know, and all this stuff. But the very last scene of the movie, he dies and it shows him being burned up in a, like a Buddhist like yep. funeral ceremony. But he's hot. He's got a secret cross that he holds. Um, like... It, it, as if I think Scorsese is trying to say, in a sense, the secret faith is the important part yes, of his faith. I think so too. Right? Endo, I think, is trying to say something more like, I mean, it's still complicated. I don't know for sure. But I think it's something more like that, th that there was still something alive that then did actually sort of flourish down through the centuries to come. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong because I don't remember the book as well as the movie, but I, I had a little, took a little issue. Yeah. With the, I mean, the end of the movie. we have 10 seconds left uh, on the two minutes, but you, you've articulated why I think this movie is troubling. I still recommend it because I think it raises things worth thinking about, but it is not the movie of triumph. And I actually think Scorsese is sort of skeptical of real genuine faith. Yeah. So, all right. That would be my reservation. So no spoilers. Uh, if you've skipped ahead uh, the two minutes here, we're back. Not giving any spoilers, but I will just repeat what I told Andrew if you skipped ahead for the spoilers, which is that I, I don't recommend this movie unreservedly. I don't think this is uh, something that you should just sort of imbibe or inject straight into your veins. I think you should watch it with a critical eye. And I do think that Scorsese, who grew up Catholic and is now a lapsed Catholic, by the way, as is Liam Neeson, um, I do think that he has a pretty skeptical view of, uh, of genuine faith. Um, and certainly a skeptical view of the Catholic faith. So, you know, just um, take that for what it's worth. But I do think it's a movie worth seeing. All right. So that's my recommendation, Andrew. What do you have? Okay. Well, I have something a little different, Zach. Uh, as you know, my job title where I work at Word on Fire has the name of Fulton Sheen in it. My, my job title is the Venerable Fulton J. Sheen Fellow of Popular Culture. And um, Fulton Sheen, I just want to say a word about him real quick. He, it, he was a, a famous Catholic in the 20th century. He was a household name. All four of my Protestant grandparents loved Fulton Sheen. Um, he was, you know, he was on primetime television, tens of millions of viewers every week. Um, big, big deal. 
Um, but I honestly didn't know anything about Fulton Sheen. I had never read anything or seen any of his stuff or anything like that really before I became Catholic just a few years ago. And then here I am now in a job where I have his name attached to my job. So I have kind of little by little been trying to learn more about Fulton Sheen, read more of his stuff. And one of the most important things that I like doing is watching on YouTube, watching old episodes of his shows, which are readily available. Um, and they're they're absolutely fantastic. And if you dial one of these up and you find them, you'll see why people were enamored with him. I mean, he just sort of struts around with this cape and, you know, he he cracks jokes and he's, you know, but but more than anything, the faith that he presents is not easy faith. I mean, it is, he's an intellectual, but he has a way of like bringing it down to the popular level. But also he does not shy away from talking about sin, from talking about angels and demons, from talking about, I mean, really, this is not sort of cafeteria Catholicism. This is not, you know, beige Catholicism, as, as my boss likes to put it. Um, it's challenging stuff. But he also talks about society stuff and culture stuff. And I, I found an episode just the other day that I want to recommend that it turns out to be one that's, that's pretty famous. That's called Quo Vadis America. Uh, Where are you going, America? And it was broadcast sometime in the mid to late 60s. I actually couldn't find the precise original air date. But he's talking about a lot of civil unrest, a lot of um, even revolutionary fervor that's going on in the United States um, as, uh, you know, the 60s kind of heated up. And, um, you know, it, it won't be that if you if you find this, it won't necessarily be um, it, it's slightly anachronistic in certain ways, uh, but it's also prophetic in certain ways. I mean, it really is looking ahead to uh, to to the kinds of issues that we're facing still today. And in fact, maybe have kind of heated up again as they had been in the in the 1960s. Um, he talks about patriotism. He talks about he, he contrasts, um, you know, kind of people like Thomas Jefferson with people like the French revolutionaries like Saint-Just and um, Robespierre and people like that. So you kind of got to wade through some of that and see how much of it makes sense. But he gets to the end of this particular broadcast and he lays out this threefold problem that he sees with America. And the three things he points out are one, a problem of elitism. And with elitism, he means um, he, he calls it a dominant minority that uses violence to force its will upon others. That's what he called. Um, then he talks about mysticism. And he's like, why would I talk about mysticism? I'm, you know, I'm a Catholic bishop or whatever. But then he actually kind of situates this re re uh, revolutionary fervor in the context of a kind of religious fervor. And I think that's one of the really prophetic things that he talks about. You know, um, he talks about how the, the revolutionaries of his day talk about no alternatives, no compromise, you know. Uh, and then the third thing he talks about, and this is the real, the real mind blower, is he talks about Satanism. He says that ultimately this kind of like revolutionary fervor that isn't grounded in some kind of like sense of common good, like the, the gift of God's goodness, like all these kinds of things is ultimately just Satanism because it's disorder, it's chaos, it, 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 will, it will do nobody any good. Um, and then the entire thing ends. So he talks about elitism, mysticism, Satanism, and then the whole thing ends with this just absolute crescendo. You, even if you just watch the last couple of minutes, he talks about how everybody's chanting down with this, down with that. And then he just, I mean, just preaches the gospel. He says, what I want to say is up. And he just over and over again says, up with this, up with that. And the very last thing he says, up, up, up to God. And um, I mean, you're just watching this and it's like, this was on network television, 50 Amazing. million people yeah. watch this. Amazing. I mean, it's like no, no one on the internet, no one today has anything like the kind of reach that Fulton Sheen had. Yeah. And what did he do with it? He just opened up full blast. Wow. It's really incredible. So if you go back and watch these, you won't be sorry. I'm, I'm going to go look for that right now. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I cannot imagine someone of Fulton Sheen's status, certainly not preaching that message, having that kind of reach today. I mean, the most, the most popular bishop on social media today is, of course, your boss, Bishop Barron. And he doesn't get numbers approaching 50 million for one, one talk. That's incredible. No, nope, no one does. Amazing. I mean, not even Joel Osteen or anybody, yeah, even people true. who are sort of uh, on network TV and selling yeah. number one New York Times bestselling book. Yeah. Remarkable. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to find that. I will find it and link it in the show notes as well. So you can look yeah. forward to that. All right. Well, uh, I had another question for you, uh, but we'll save that for next week. We're out of time. Uh, this is a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for joining for another What a Week. We'll workshop that. Maybe we'll come up with a better name. 
uh, to our listeners. If you have some comments, again, just send us a note, Zach and Andrew at creedlepodcast.com. We'll look forward to uh, getting those notes from you and engaging with some of your thoughts on air next time. And until next time, God bless you. 